Hello, bonjour, hola, and welcome to the latest episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast. We are so appreciative of your interest in listening to our wonderful little series of global discussions. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host of this program. If this is your first time listening, I hope you enjoy our insightful conversation and will go back and check out previous episodes. It is a wonderful way to stay engaged in the world and challenge your own perspectives. Today, we are diving into the relationship between Russia and China, which was announced a mere three weeks before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As we at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire have made very clear, we continue to stand in opposition to this illegal and inhumane invasion of a sovereign nation. Our speaker today, Sawar Kashmiri, host of the Polaris Live podcast and fellow of the Peace and War Center of Norwich University, also has a statement he would like to make before we dive into the conversation. It's important to point out that there are no excuses, none at all, for Russia's wanton killing of civilians, children, men, women, really targeting civilian populations, uh, that there is no excuse for that kind of murder. So irrespective of what I say or don't say throughout, I just wanted to make that very clear. We appreciate your keeping this in mind as you listen to this episode. Before we jump in, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor of the Global in the Granite State podcast, McLean Middleton. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. We cannot thank this organization enough for all the ways in which they support our work. They are true leaders here in the community, and we appreciate their focus on global affairs. It is also a good time to let you know that if you like this podcast, we do need your support in order to keep it going. All told, it takes about $5,000 a year to produce this, and let me tell you, that is a shoestring budget. We are not asking you to cover it all in one fell swoop, but if you could give a donation to help, it would be much appreciated. You can donate at wacnh.org slash donate. You are the reason we do this and what makes it possible. All right, let's get started. understand the China-Russia relations and the impact of Ukraine, it's important in my mind to note that the basic reason for Russia and China getting together is to oppose what both perceive, especially China perceives, as the American effort aided by the West to stop its progress and to contain it. For longtime listeners of the podcast, you will recall that Sawar has joined us for many a discussion on the U.S.-China relationship, or lack thereof. On February 4th, 2022, China and Russia released a joint statement indicating a new era of relations between the two states. 
As is the case with all governments, the agreement text is quite lengthy, so it was distilled down to, quote, a relationship with no limits. It does read, in part, that, quote, there is increasing interrelation and interdependence between the states, Russia and China in this case. A trend has emerged towards redistribution of power in the world, and the international community is showing more demand for the leadership aiming at peaceful and gradual development. At the same time, as the pandemic of the new coronavirus infection continues, the international and regional security situation is complicating, and the number of global challenges and threats is growing from day to day. Some actors representing, but the minority on the international scale, continue to advocate unilateral approaches to addressing international issues and resort to force. They interfere in the internal affairs of other states, infringing their legitimate rights and interests, and incite contradictions, differences, and confrontation, thus hampering the development and progress of mankind against the opposition from the international community. End quote. This was released mere 21 days before Russia unilaterally decided to resort to force and interfere in the internal affairs of another state, Ukraine. The irony of this has not been lost in the Western media. Swar continues. Along with that is the security consideration. China, as you know, uh, has so openly stated that Taiwan uh, is an integral part of China, right? And a large part of that has to do with security relations. It doesn't want an American base uh, within swimming distance of it. Right. And therefore, it supports and understands, I believe, understands the Russian objections to NATO expanding all the way to Russia's border. So that basic reason will, I believe, keep this relationship going unless something really untoward happens. As far as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, that's really hard to tell. I mean, uh, some people believe that there was a basic understanding when Mr. Putin was in uh, Beijing for the Olympics that something like this could happen, but we don't know the answer to that. In short, I believe the uh, Russia-China relationship will continue because there are very basic vital national security interests for both countries to make it go that way. When I first reached out to Suar, I really wanted to better understand China's role in this illegal and inhumane invasion. We have heard over the years that China believes in the territorial integrity of all states. They do not believe in becoming a colonial power, and President Xi has gone so far as to say that China has never invaded or bullied other countries. Over the centuries, however, it is hard to say that China has never invaded another country, having invaded Vietnam multiple times, annexed Turkestan, now Xinjiang, where the Uyghur Muslims are, and most recently India in 2020. There are at least seven examples of China invading different territories since 1949, although the Chinese Central Party would not term them as invasions. In light of their official statements around territorial integrity, usually brought out when they are blaming the West for stoking internal dissent, it intrigued me to find out more about how this can be reconciled with their recent response, or lack thereof, to the invasion in Ukraine. You know, there's an old saying about China uh, probably apocryphal, but maybe not, is a reporter asking Mao Zedong, what has been the long-range impact of the uh, French Revolution? And Mao Zedong looking at the reporter and saying, you know, it's too early to tell. 
I just quote that because that I believe is an important yardstick for how China looks at its policies and its strategies, always taking the long-term position. I think it's much too early to tell uh, where China's headed in that regard. Now, again, I'll underscore what ties all this together is vital national security interests. And in China's case, this has to do with Taiwan. It has to do with their belief that the West, America, is trying to contain it, is trying to stop its rise to number one, where it is headed. In my opinion, whether America likes it or not, it's only China's to lose, you know, in the view of their very strong principled beliefs on territoriality and on non-interference in another country's borders and rights. But I would like to point out that half the world has not condemned, right? India, which is a strong part of the American strategy of containing China in the future with its uh, so-called Quad relationship, they have not condemned it. South Africa has not condemned it. You know, numerous Middle Eastern countries are hedging on it. So it's not that this is a universally condemned situation. That's important to point out. I agree that this is a very important point that we do not hear as much in the Western media as we should. Yes, the vast majority of members of the UN Security Council voted to condemn the invasion, but three countries abstained from voting. As a total percentage of global population, countries representing over half the world have refused to condemn the invasion. However, on March 2nd, the UN General Assembly voted to demand Russia's end to the invasion, with 141 countries in favor, 5 voted against the resolution, and 35 abstained from the vote. China abstained from the vote, indicating that this resolution was hasty and did not increase the chances for diplomacy to bring an end to the violence. So, what, in Sawar's opinion, is behind the Chinese hesitancy to speak out against Russia in this case? This has to do with Taiwan. It has to do with their belief that the West, America, is trying to contain it, is trying to stop its rise to number one. So that's where this situation is. And it's also awkward for the Chinese because China's trade relationship, economic relationship with Russia, is roughly $140 billion at this point. They aim to increase it by 2024 to $200 billion. Big increase, right? But compare that with the $1.3 trillion trade relationship with the EU and the US. So that adds to the awkwardness of how China will treat this. But there are those basic national interests. And so the awkwardness, I wanted to say, goes two ways. One of the big questions, which I recognize comes from my Western perspective of what global leadership looks like, surrounds how China can view itself as a global leader, yet refuse to stand for what it believes, whatever that may be. By abstaining, they do not appear to want to lead on this global issue, at least in the way that the West has taken that role historically. I think that is a major mistake for Western strategy crafters to think about how China may behave or not behave from a Western perspective. Just think about the last 40 years. How has China projected its influence around the world? It's projected it 
by pushing out this Belt and Road Initiative, right? This enormous project to build tunnels and roads and railways and ports around the world, connecting everyone to everyone else and to China. They haven't built it by making military bases. You know, I'd like to remind you that the United States has 600 military bases. And, and after becoming the second largest power in the world, China has one, possibly two minor bases, right? So China is intent on building its influence by building infrastructure, by projecting health to other countries. In its history, it has not been a colonial power as the West has been, right? When America was in this position, especially the Europe in this position, what did they do? They went around colonizing countries, right? Exploiting uh, their products. Uh, and I'm not going back into history to, to condemn everybody for all this, but it's important to keep that in mind. So when we in the West say, how does this square with China wanting to be a responsible leader? I believe that China can turn around and say, well, we are the leader, as you point out, only because we have not followed in your footsteps. So I think looking at China in that way is a big mistake to begin with. So I think China is doing what it has done for the last 40 years. It'll continue doing so. Diving a little deeper into the renewed relationship between these two countries, there are reports that Russia has made a request for military aid to help its invasion, which seemingly has not been going according to plan for Russia. Since China has abstained from votes and has refused to condemn the invasion, what are we to infer from these anonymous reports of this request? Do you recall the reports in the Western media that Russia had asked China for help? They were not repeated or echoed in either the Russian press or the Chinese press, to the best of my knowledge. So there is a good chance that that report might have been, how shall I say, a disinformation war push out by the West. I don't know whether it is. I don't know whether it's not. Let's assume that that is correct, that Russia did ask China for help. My feeling is, and I'll stick my neck out on this one, that I don't believe that China, if there is such a report, is going to accede to that. Because I think for them, that would be a bridge too far. But also, there is no evidence at all that there are no boundaries to our growing friendship. I do not believe that that equates to a military alliance. And therefore, I don't believe that China is going to stick its neck out in that regard. By the same token, I don't expect China to be condemning Russia for what it's doing as far as the invasion. I think that China will behind the scenes exert some pressure on Russia. You know, I'd love to be a fly on that wall because I think if anyone is surprised, not just the Chinese, but also the American intelligence and military is how badly Russian military has performed. You know, because we were all told after the Georgia invasion, where Russia found a lot of holes in its military strategy, that they took 20 years to fill those up. And they now had this modern cyber-driven military, you know, they would blank out all of uh, Ukraine's communications, armor would then roll through and nothing has happened. So I suspect that has also added to the awkwardness of China. And another reason, albeit a secondary one, that China is going to say, hey, 
you know, what kind of military basket are we putting our eggs in? So that, I think, would be my answer to this, that no, they will not help on the military side, but no, they're not going to condemn Russia for the action against uh, Ukraine, because China well understands uh, Russia's security interests, which, which I think have a great deal of legitimacy. While they may not be willing to support the Russian invasion with military equipment, we have seen a number of exercises between the two militaries over the past couple of years. So, since the increased relationship between the two countries is mainly focused on countering the West's attempts to hem in China and Russia, can we expect deeper collaboration on military drills in the future? You know, last year, eight or nine months ago, Russia and China had the biggest exercise in Xinjiang, which is close to Xinjiang. Over 10,000 Chinese and Russian troops participated to improve their being able to work together. Just this year, China and Russia and Iran actually held a very big naval exercise uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So I think those will continue. And it's part of uh, China trying to maneuver against the American attempt to link together countries to oppose it. This relationship with no limits, of course, is about more than just military relations. So it is important to understand what economic ties there are between the two countries and how the impact of sanctions against Russia will affect things moving forward. The most recent statistics show that most of Russia's exports to China have to do with energy. Right, they have to do with oil, they have to do with gas, and they have to do, in some cases, with minerals. On the Chinese side, they're exporting to Russia. What is a large part of what they export to the EU, by the way, is medical equipment, electronic pieces for cars that are being made, and also some infrastructure. So that's where so the Chinese exports uh, are headed into Russia. The BRI, as you know, Belt and Road Initiative passes through Russia also. So there's some of that. Uh, so it's mostly energy from the Russian and food, by the way, uh, energy and food from the Russian side. Uh, and then uh, medical equipment and, and related products from the uh, Chinese side to, uh, to Russia. As a response to the invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and Europe as well as other allies, have placed massive sanctions on Russia. There are continuing conversations on what to ratchet up next and concerns about the impact on the global economy. However, with China providing a massive potential market for Russian goods, particularly its energy exports, it remains to be seen how effective these can be. In addition, many other countries have refused to enact these sanctions as well. There are certain challenges to achieving this redirection of economic activity, for example, the gas pipelines that serve Europe are not connected to those that serve China, making it difficult to simply redirect that production. However, as we have seen, and President Biden has admitted, these sanctions were not designed to stop the invasion, but rather to impose costs on the Russian government and economy for the actions taken. There is a healthy debate around the world as to the effectiveness of sanctions in achieving their goals, as well as if this is the best path forward for the world and the U.S., I guess I'm opposed to America, if I may use this phrase, becoming a sanctions nation, you know, because one can't apply it with uniformity. And therefore, it compromises basic vital American principles, right? For example, we've laid all these sanctions on Russia. We've laid sanctions on China. But we are not laying any sanctions on India. 
We are not laying any sanctions on uh, other countries, uh, Middle East countries, for example, which do horrible things. I mean, Saudi Arabia, two weeks ago, beheaded, and I'll use the word again, beheaded 87 people, as I recall, at one time on a big playing field, right? This kind of stuff that happens with no sanctions, people look at this and say, you know, so what are these sanctions all about? So I think it's more a feel good than a powerful way of changing how people think and how countries behave. Uh, and so I just think there need to be more diplomatic ways to, to do this. It also starts to push away the space that is needed for diplomatic solutions. Uh, and I think that's not good. So I'm not certain that these sanctions mean that, I mean, take the example of the sanctions on Russia, right? We are already making the statement that we've crippled Russia and brought it to its knees. Its economy is about to collapse. Now, a large part of that is probably true. But I would point out that France, which is a huge trading partner of Russia, has kept its banking and its car construction operations intact. Societe Generale, the big French bank, still operates in Russia and maintains it. Renault has a very big car operation in, in Russia. It is still keeping it going. France relies a lot on luxury products. You know, it's still keeping those places intact. So it's too early to tell whether uh, Europe has all come together and we're all putting on these sanctions. I go back to Mao Zedong. It's far too early to tell. Everything looks good, feels good right now, uh, but let's wait and see. Two other points, if I may make on this particular question. It still is an open question how far Europe will go, right? I was talking to some friends in Italy last week. The price of bread has doubled in a week in Italy. So what does that mean? And then we are approaching cooler weather in three or four months. What is that going to mean, right? So I think we need to be very careful about all of these. I mean, take the United States. You know, Wall Street, the big banks, Morgan Guarantee, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Chase, were counting on huge amounts of business in Russia and in China for their investment money management operations. What's going to happen if all of that collapses and bonuses disappear in America? There's unemployment, so we need to think carefully. The idea of how far the West is willing to go with the sanctions regime is certainly an important topic to think about. The way I've termed it is we all need to question what is the price we are willing to pay in order to punish Russia for this invasion, and this is why the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire continues to push out information on the latest updates to what is going on in the world. Overall, you need to be informed in order to know what you are willing to accept and what you want the U.S. government to do in your name. So, if the sanctions do not work, or are not the best route forward, or they start to collapse under economic pressure, what is our recourse if the West has vocally taken military action off the table, unless a NATO country is directly attacked. We use diplomacy. We use common sense. We accept reality. The reality today is that China has had the best 40 years in its country's economy and its history of the last 4,000. The same amount of time has seen the American middle class get shortened. Our standards of living have gone down. Uh, period of infant livelihood has gone down. 
right? So what we need to do is we need to accept the fact that we are no longer the military power in the Southeast, right? The Indo-Pacific, China is. We need to accept the fact that in many ways, China has already passed the United States as an economic power. I would ask your uh, viewers uh, to go look at a report that Harvard Belfer Center released just last week that talks about China and what reality is. For some reason, the US has not accepted this reality. It's time to do that because we have nothing to be concerned about. I mean, there will be two powers, so what? How many people do you know that want to emigrate to China? How many people do you know that want to emigrate to America? Thousands. The world wants to come to America, right? So we have undeniable assets, our universities, our large bond market, the trust in the American dollar. We seem to be not playing on our strengths. And as an American, I think we need to stop this defensive posture, stop these sanctions. We need to focus on where we can build. I think America is always one playing offense, not defense. As who was it, Mark Antony, that said the fault lies not in the stars, but in us, right? And that's what I think we need to be thinking of, not this business of feel-good sanctions. Not being a scholar of Russian affairs myself, I do wonder if there ever was a diplomatic solution to be had here. It seems that the only thing that Putin has ever responded to is hard power. Since the initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014, diplomacy and sanctions have not resolved the conflict. The continuation of the invasion has not been halted by any global effort to bring it to an end. Really, the only thing that seems to have slowed Putin's ambition has been staunch resistance put up by the Ukrainian defenders. History is yet to be written in how this invasion will play out. However, there is one final thing I was considering as I thought through what we were seeing. Many people have compared the invasion of Ukraine to China's desire to reunite with Taiwan. It would seem that now, as the world's attention is focused in Europe, would be a good time for an invasion of the island. Apparently, people much smarter than me were thinking the same thing as we saw several freedom of navigation maneuvers by the U.S. Navy around Taiwan over the past couple of weeks. However, as Sawar points out, an invasion of Taiwan is... Very far out from China's policy, which in my opinion is that, you know, this is a fruit ready to fall into the basket at some point. So why do we want to go to war over it? One. Two, China is clearly the dominant power there. If it wanted to take Taiwan, you know, very little could stop it. Thirdly, there is an enormous amount of investment, enormous number of families uh, that make this investment both in Taiwan and on the mainland. Right? So there are so many ways in which Taiwan and China are linked together economically and so many ways in which uh, Taiwan is susceptible to a China attack, if that's what China wanted to do, that I don't believe that there's going to be an invasion unless the Taiwanese government declares independence or unless America decides that it's going to send part of the 82nd Airborne to be in Taiwan. I don't believe there's any incentive for China to attack. Of course, this remains a very fluid situation with information changing daily. We keep the people of Ukraine in our hearts and minds as the invasion unfolds and more civilians and soldiers on both sides lose their lives. It is important to remember that this is not the only conflict ongoing in the world, 
even if it is the one that has caught our attention. Civil wars in Syria and Ethiopia have killed hundreds of thousands. Military juntas in Myanmar and Burkina Faso work to severely restrict the freedom of the people they rule, oftentimes violently. There is so much to know about the world and engage with the world. We are appreciative of your time to listen to this podcast and for Sawar Kashmiri for providing us the time and insights. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast. Once again, if you like what you hear, please consider donating to the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire or becoming a member. You can do either, as well as see more about our upcoming programs by visiting wacnh.org. Your interest and support are what drives us. Also, do let us know what you think by dropping us a comment, rating the podcast, or shooting us an email at council at wacnh.org. We would love to hear from you and hear what you would like us to explore in the future episodes. This is a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. The host, producer, audio technician, editor, and any other title you can think of for this podcast is Tim Horgan. Our intro music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our interlude music is War by Triangle Forest. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next month. Mm -hmm.